Welcome to the CSLP Podcast, where we're helping to educate, inform, and assist financial professionals and student loan borrowers to make smarter repayment decisions. So everybody, welcome back. It's been uh, quite a hiatus for us on the CSLP podcast here. We have been uh, busy um, revamping the CSLP course. Heather uh, joins me today, Jance Hoffman and Heather Jarvis here to talk to you about the uh, craziness that is student loans in a very timely fashion. Um, Heather, what have we been doing for the last couple of months since we haven't been uh, talking to the world about student loans on our podcast? Well, you know, Jans, we've just been twiddling our thumbs, of course, doing essentially nothing. No, no, not not at all. We've been completely updating the Certified Student Loan Professional course. And so we have created some really awesome new content, and we've been working really hard on it. And that's why we haven't been doing the podcast as much. Um, but now... We, like the rest of the country, are sheltering within our homes and distancing ourselves from one another and everyone else socially. And so we have a little time at our computers since we're, we're no longer, you know, commuting or anything like that. Right. And uh, let's talk about how the CSLP course has changed. I, I know a lot of people listening to us today will probably... Uh, be tuning in to get into the CARES Act, which we will talk a lot about here, um, and all the regulatory changes that are going on with student loans. But before we dive into that, um, let's talk a little bit about the changes to the CSLP course uh, that we have been working on um, and some of the exciting things that are, that are changed with it. So um, we have not just uh, taken what was one course with the California State University System, Humboldt State University, who we were partnering with, but we have revamped that course into four courses now uh, that make up a certificate in student loan planning. And um, I know I'm really excited about the outcome uh, of the coursework that we put together. The old course was great, but I think we've even approved upon that uh, further. And, and I think it's going to lead to more student loan borrowers getting real quality advice um, from their advisors and a great resource for the advisors that are CSLP to, to further their knowledge in student loan repayment. Yeah, absolutely. So we've broken the we've broken the material into four parts so that we really can start at the beginning with more introductory material, even breaking down, you know, sort of how interest accrues and and how payments are distributed distributed and, and all of the fundamentals uh, in the 100 level course. Then in the 200 level course, we talk about a lot of the student loan specific rules, including, you know, things like uh, status of loans and how to um, do intake as an advisor, talking to a student loan borrower. And that's really great stuff. And then you, Jans, have put together some amazing profession-specific case studies um, that really expand on what we've done in the past. I always loved the case studies, and I think they're very instructive. Um, but you now have a whole, a whole slew of those where you just show people exactly what the specific um, student loan circumstances are that arise for particular kinds of borrowers like doctors, veterinarians, teachers, uh, business owners, you know, that kind of thing. And you've got all of that um, financial advising stuff built in. So it's really good stuff. And, and the exam is also revamped. And, um, you know, it's quite, it's quite tricky. But if, if a person can, you know, successfully learn that material, as, as folks can, um, you'll really be able to do a terrific job for borrowers after, um, after going through that. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm really excited not just about the revamping of the course, um, the, the ability to really break it down the way we have so it starts slower, getting basics and builds as the coursework goes along. Um, it is more detailed than it was before, and we do take a deeper dive into some of the financial planning topics, whether it be uh, disability insurance, life insurance, retirement planning, employee benefits to, to provide some uh, more robust information to the CSLP that are going through it. 
Um, and as you mentioned, that uh, that CSLP exam now is is um, more focused on practical application for advisors. Can they receive student loan data, uh, interpret that with borrower information, and make recommendations and analyze a case, which is really exciting. Uh, and one other component that I think uh, is nice is the uh, the new coursework that we have launched is. Uh, is compliant with all screen readers. So if we have any vision impaired individuals that uh, are looking to be assisting borrowers, we now have uh, the capability for them to go through that uh, that coursework as well. Yeah, I'm glad that we've got that established. And you know, it's it's funny. I've I've been working on student loan stuff for so many years now that I I I thought I wouldn't be surprised by anything, but it, it seems to me like. You know, virtually any kind of significant life event has a student loan implication. If you're a student loan borrower, particularly the kind that we specialize in, those who have high student debt balances because of graduate or professional education, you know, pretty much any big life event has some implications for student loan repayment and forgiveness and, you know, sort of strategies for managing student debt. And apparently a, a global pandemic is no exception to that rule. Um, we, we are here in the time of coronavirus, recording our session here at the beginning of April 2020. And we uh, have had, you know, lots of new information coming down the pike just in the last week, um, rapidly changing guidance from the government and adjustments to law in order to support people um, during this difficult time. And so, Jance, that's what we were going to focus on today in our conversation uh, are the the government responses to the coronavirus insofar as they impact um, student loan repayment forgiveness and all of those procedural things that that we care so much about when it comes to helping student loan borrowers. Right. So if we look at the timeline, um, a few weeks back, we had President Trump stand up in front of everybody and and indicate that um, student loan interest would be waived and that borrowers could opt to forego payments during this period of time. Uh, but as we talk about in the CSLP course, uh, when we talk about the legislative history of how student loans have come to be and the repayment plans exist, there are some limitations to what the president could do. Um, and one of the challenges has been... Um, if, advising clients in this period is that, and for borrowers, is that it's been so fluid. There's been quick changes over a short period of time that are relatively large uh, in scale and scope. Um, So when we looked at, you know, two or three weeks ago, uh, borrowers were having to request forbearances with their servicers that were going to be approved and interest was suspended, but that wasn't counting towards public service loan forgiveness. If they were still in, in, uh, a public service loan forgiveness position, and it's really uh, changed rapidly. So from there, we had the CARES Act that that passed uh, on Friday of last week, uh, and it sort of rewrote the rules that were rewrote a, a week and a half before that. Um, so now that what the president had had sort of directed the Department of Education to do is is water under the bridge. We'll focus more on the CARES Act. Uh, and Heather, why don't you kind of dive into um, what's in the CARES Act that student loan borrowers and advisors need to, to know about? Yeah, so the final past legislation ends up doing two primary things that affect student loan borrowers. One is a suspension of payments through the end of September 2020. And the other is an interest waiver or a setting of interest to 0% for that same period of time. Um, and, you know, Jance and I are going to go through and sort of talk about all the things we know about how that will impact specific borrowers, particularly those who are in income-driven repayment plans or working toward public service loan forgiveness. There are also a, a, a number of questions that we have based on our knowledge of, uh, you know, sort of the struggles of student loan servicers to implement rules even in um, normal times, let alone under um, these conditions. And so I I do want to just, you know, follow up on what you said, Jans, a moment ago. You were talking about the president's actions and the limitations to that and what the and and the fact that that the executive order that was issued on March 13th is really no longer the law of the land. And I think that's important to note. I also wanted to 
flesh out a little bit what you said is that that, you know, we had some language from the Senate that looked for a while like it was going to pass. So, you know, one of the and then it was somewhat changed before it was finalized in the House and then signed into law. So I want to be clear that what we're going to talk about today uh, primarily are the provisions that have been made law that have passed both houses of Congress and been signed by the president. And so we have this legislation. We've had a hold of it now for three or four days, four days, five days. Um, but we, there isn't any kind of normal um, regulatory process like would next flow. So typically, you know, Congress makes a law and then there's a, a, a long negotiated rulemaking process. And there's no time to do that. If, if, if things were done on a normal schedule, the rules would come out, you know, after the uh, payment suspension and interest waiver was complete. You know, it would take the whole six months to get that done. And so there are a lot of unanswered questions that we are going to pose and some of them we'll try to answer because some of them we know the answers to others of them we will you know have a lot to say about sort of how this could go right or wrong or what we feel like we're going to need to do to you know sort of goose the system into into doing a better job in implementing this relief than it might otherwise do right right i mean there are some things that are clear in here, of, and the Department of Education has provided some information on their site, which gives us a little further guidance into um, what they are directing the loan servicers to do. But they've been directing the loan servicers to do one thing for a long time, and the servicers haven't necessarily been following uh, in line. Um, so we'll have to talk about you know, what's in the bill, what do we know um, some questions that we have and sort of our thoughts on them and how they should go or we expect them to go. Uh, but we'll have a lot to talk about for advisors and for borrowers to keep an eye out for, to be concerned about where things could go wrong and, quite frankly, how borrowers could end up getting screwed in this process to some instance. Um, but let's talk about the big takeaway. So the big takeaway from the the bill that was passed is um, six months with no payments and six months where there's no interest charged. And they're calling this an administrative forbearance. Uh, and, and Heather and I have talked about this offline. Uh, so Heather, talk a little bit about our take and our displeasure with them calling it a forbearance. Yeah, so, so it's an important point. So the, the statute, the CARES Act itself says, the secretary, referring in this case to the secretary of the Department of Education, shall suspend payments on student loans effective as of the date of enactment and through the end of September. And so that is a, a firm directive, right? And in the law, we take that word shall very seriously. Like there, that is not discretionary. That is not like, you know, if you feel like it, that is like, you will do this. This is what you will do. Um, and so it says nothing about forbearance, but then the interpretation, which in this case is kind of substituting for the regulatory process, the interpretation that the Department of Education has put out uh, just today uh, is that they're referring to that period of time, this suspension of payments as an administrative forbearance. And, and the reason that we care about that is that forbearance itself is a loan status, and typically it's a loan status that borrowers request, and they can either there is either um, there is either discretionary forbearance or there is mandatory forbearance. Um, so the law provides that under certain circumstances, a loan servicer must grant a request for forbearance. Um, you know, forbearance being a postponement of the borrower's obligation to pay. Um, and there are other cases in which the um, f the forbearance is discretionary on the part of the of the servicer, but you also hear, even though this is really not supported by by statute or regulatory law, you also hear thrown around this term administrative forbearance, and and that is annoying to advocates like um, Jance and me because. It's, it essentially means a forbearance for the convenience of the loan servicing company, you know, because they didn't process, you know, something in a timely manner or whatever. And they just feel like sort of parking the loan in this limbo status. And forbearance is not good for borrowers uh, for a couple of reasons, because during a typical forbearance, interest continues to accrue. Now, that cannot and should not be the case under the CARES Act because interest is waived. 
um, for the same period. But typically, interest continues to accrue on all loans, even subsidized loans, during a forbearance. And moreover, that interest is and all other unpaid interest it, that has accrued is added to the principal balance of the loan at the conclusion of the forbearance period. So unpaid accrued interest is capitalized and that is triggered by forbearance. And so we don't want them calling it forbearance because one of our concerns is that interest that had accrued prior to the suspension of payments uh, will be capitalized, um, and we believe it should not be, um, certainly because borrowers are not uh, requesting uh, to have their payments postponed. Right. And in my practice, I have come across administrative forbearance with a number of my clients, and it usually occurs, as you mentioned, when a servicer drops the ball. Um, they uh, An income-driven repayment plan request for an annual recertification was submitted on time and correctly, and the servicer miscalculated the payment or didn't process the request. And then after uh, be a call from, from the client saying, hey, there's an issue with this, they, they've said, okay, we'll grant you administrative forbearance. So this payment that's supposed to be due isn't due while we sort out our errors. And from my experience, the servicers have not capitalized interest at the end of the administrative forbearances. So I, I, I'm wondering if somewhat if this is a term that's kind of trying to help the servicers along of not capitalizing the interest. But as you and I both know, when we look at forbearance, mandatory and discretionary, and you look at what's in the statute and the different types that are available, administrative forbearance doesn't exist on that list, right? That's sort of a made up term by the servicers that they've done to say, oops, are bad. Um, let's not have a payment for you and, and process what we what we should have, have been paying. And furthermore, with, with this, this challenge is even today, um, I have had clients that have contacted their loan servicer as they still have payments due and they shouldn't. Their payments should already have been dropped to zero or waived um, and they still have payments due. I have clients that have even had auto payments charged and the servicer representatives when they're calling in are, are telling our, our borrowers that um, they need to request this administrative forbearance in order to have their payments waived, which is contrary to what's in the law and what the Department of Education is dictating to them. So there's still uh, some issues going on here, even though it's supposed to be automatic and not requested by the borrower. The servicers aren't necessarily following suit yet on that. That's right. And and let me let me say one kind word about student loan servicing companies. I won't say two, just one, you know, um, which is that, you know, all of us are struggling right now to adjust to the new reality. And that includes all of the 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 good people who work for the student loan servicing companies. They are trying to do a tremendous amount of work under very difficult conditions where they can't be in the office with their, you know, close to their um, their systems that they're accustomed to using. And so I think it is a lot to ask, uh, especially with as large as a as an ask as this is. I mean, student loan, there are many, many um, outstanding student loans, and it's not easy to change things, particularly when you have uh, a lot of sort of automated processes. Um, that said, uh, I think, you know, it, we will see the same things we always see with, um, you know, servicer representatives at call centers being, you know, way too free, uh, way too freely putting out information that they are not sure is accurate um, and that, in fact, ends up being, you know, false in many cases. I also think it's very um, it's it's very clear that this this implementation of these new rules will be. Um, as bumpy as any other implementation of new rules has been within the student loan system. And it's been, you know, historically extremely bad. And so, you know, I'm, I'm quite worried that um, borrowers will need to continue to advocate for themselves, hopefully with the assistance of some knowledgeable advisors, um, and will need to really ensure that the system catches up and doesn't mistreat people, um, whether it be by, you know, incompetence or inadvertence or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so, and, you know, specifically, Jance, you mentioned, so the, the payment suspension is meant to be automatic and the Department of Education has published um, 
language on its website now saying that the payment suspension is automatic and that borrowers need not request it. On the other hand, they then say in the same breath that any auto payments that are in fact debited from borrowers' accounts during the suspension period can be refunded upon the request of the borrower. So, you know, they're essentially admitting like, yeah, we're probably going to screw this up at least sometimes, which, you know, again, I don't blame them. I mean, I make mistakes every day. Let's be clear. I make lots of mistakes. I'll continue to make lots of mistakes. And and, and so, you know, I'm not perfect. Um, but as an advocate for borrowers, I'm saying if you can't afford for the loan company to take the money out of your account like they always have, you need to put a stop to the permission for the auto debit because you can't rely on the loan servicing company not to pull the money. And in fact, Jance, you've already seen um, payments be pulled as have I since um, the enactment. Right. And, and we have to realize that um, most consumers, most borrowers are not really aware of how the programs work. Um, they're not, they're not used to encountering a system that is as broken as this. And, um, when you call in about your mortgage, um, your payment is due. They don't miscalculate it, and they generally don't provide you with incorrect information about um, what you have to do to, to make a payment on some sort of debt, whether it be a mortgage or credit card or anything else. Um, in a situation like this where payments are supposed to be put on hold and the representative saying, well, you have to request this forbearance, um, you know, uh, your average person that calls in doesn't know the difference. And really, really they need somebody that they can uh, get their advice from that's knowledgeable and really knows this stuff to push back on the servicers. Um, the client, one of the clients that I was talking about today that had a payment drafted and a payment due still uh, called in against, was told that they had to request uh, the forbearance. They reached out to me. I had a conversation with them. Um, and armed them with enough information that they could communicate back to their servicer that, no, this should be automatic, the payment should be refunded. Um, and it appears as though that will occur, but without um, some uh, someone looking out for that client and that borrower, uh, they would have had no uh, choice or no knowledge that they should have requested that to be refunded for, for them and the fact that there shouldn't be charged payments. So when the servicers make these errors, most people just take them at their word when they call in and, and it's at their detriment. Always True. Detriment. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that continues to drive me crazy about the student loan system. Like it's it you know, it's hard to operate a system that's large like this and within a bureaucracy and all of that. But you don't have to interpret every rule. Um, in favor of the lender and against the borrower. And that's what the system does. And you could have a completely different policy where you say like, oh, if the servicer gave wrong information or if a borrower was confused because the system is so difficult to navigate, you could you could err on applying rules in the way that was least harmful to borrowers. Oh my God, scandal, right? To me, I'm like, that makes sense to do, especially in the system we currently have that is you know, so obviously broken. Um, but I think you're I think you're right, Jance. I think, you know, what is the practical advice that advisors and borrowers need? I think what they need to know is what are the rules that have just been established by the CARES Act and how are we going to ensure that the system applies these rules fairly? Um, and the rules are clear. No payments are required until after September, until the 1st of October. And that is assuming that no additional legislation or executive orders are issued that would extend that period. And so no payments are required. And so any borrower who doesn't have the cash or doesn't believe it's in their best interest to make a payment right now um, doesn't have to make a payment. Um, and actually, you know what we should do, Jance? We should talk about the loans uh, that this applies to and the loans that it does not before we go too much farther. Because, of course, as you know, there's lots of different kinds of student loans. Private loans, absolutely not covered. And by private loans, I mean those issued by banks and lenders, but also a lot of the campus loans that a school institutional loans that a school might issue. Also sort of nonprofit or state loans are often um, really more private in nature. So a lot of federal loans are included. All of the direct loans that have been issued since the summer of 2010 
are included in the CARES Act, but there are a number of federal student loans, typically older student loans, health professions loans, and Perkins loans that are not covered by the CARES Act. And so, Jens, do you want to explain to our listeners the difference between a FELL loan and a direct loan and also the difference between a commercially held FELL loan and a federally held FELL loan? Yeah, so what Heather's getting at is is the CARES Act it, it only applies to loans that are held by the federal government. Um, all direct loans... Uh, since all loans issued since 2010 um, have been direct loans. So we're talking about our Stafford, unsubsidized Stafford, subsidized, our Graduate Plus loans, our Parent Plus loans, and consolidation loans since 2010 have all been uh, direct loans. And these are loans that are made directly from the Department of Education uh, to borrowers. Prior to 2010, um, there were two different systems that were in place. There was the direct loans program, and there was the federal family education loan program. The federal family education loan program uh, took private resources, pooled those dollars together, loaned them to student loan borrowers, and they were federally guaranteed by the Department of Education. And those loans are oftentimes held in... um, securities by investors that uh, are, are not the Department of Education and not the government. So when we look at what this, who this applies to, this is only going to be held or applies to those loans that are likely the direct loans, although some of those older federal family education loans um, are held by the Department of Education. Um, and those are, are likely loans that were defaulted in some sort of collections or wage garnishment as um, ed- the Department of Education takes those loans back uh, from the investors when they default. Um, so a real nuance, and, and for most borrowers, uh, what you're probably going to look at is if you have direct loans, um, those are going to have the suspension of payments. If you have older loans, uh, federal family education, consolidation loans, Stafford loans are unsubsidized, plus uh, for graduate or parents that predate 2010, um, you, you'll want to check to make sure if they are FELL loans or if they're direct loans. And the best way to do that. Um, is to utilize studentaid.gov, but it's probably to, to, to talk to a professional that can help you decipher that. Um, because I, unfortunately, I, I feel that um, for most borrowers, they're just student loans. They don't necessarily know the difference. Absolutely. And even for you know professional advisors, it can be kind of tricky to hone in on that information. Uh, those who have taken our full course, Jans, have know that you know there's a text file that can be downloaded. And if you are um, knowledgeable enough and have seen enough of these, you can hone in on who is the current holder of the loan and see if the holder is the United States Department of Education. Um, but it's not easy, you know, so so certainly, you know, and of course, the media, bless their hearts, because thank God for a free press, do um, never understand the distinction between, you know, federal loans or direct loans and fell loans and even, you know, between fell loans, what's commercially held and what's federally held. So, you know, a lot of loans are covered by this, but there are um, there's there's probably around what was the estimate I saw from the National Consumer Law Center? I think it was nine million borrowers likely have some federal federal loans that are not covered, or that may have been all the loans. Yeah, 9 million borrowers have at least one loan that isn't covered, according to um, an estimate by the National Consumer Law Center. Yeah, so you do want to check, and, and we'll, we'll kind of dive into what happens during this period of time for those borrowers. They, they will still have payments due on that section of their loans, although they can ask for a, a forbearance during this period of time if they have hardship. Um, but whether, you know, let, let's assume most borrowers today have direct loans. It's the lion's share of federal loans that exist. But <laughs> but there are still some of these um, older other loan programs that um, borrowers need to look out for. Certainly, this is one of the reasons why we always caution people uh, about doing private refinance of their federal student loans, because they give up protections like this um, and they're stuck having to deal with a, a private lender with their negotiations. Um 
But let's talk about, Heather, let's talk about some of the other rules in here and some questions that a lot of borrowers are asking about this suspension of payment terms. So let's say they have direct loans, their payments are suspended. Um, do Does this period of time count towards their forgiveness in income-driven repayment or public service loan forgiveness? And are there any caveats or things that, that these borrowers need to look out for? Yeah, so, it, so potentially this period of suspension of payments can count towards forgiveness, but only for borrowers who are already enrolled in an income-driven repayment plan when the suspension begins. So there are two primary kinds of federal loan forgiveness. There's the long-term income-driven forgiveness that is not tied to employment, and then there's public service loan forgiveness, that also requires borrowers to choose and, and enroll in income-driven repayment plans. So if you're a, a federal direct loan borrower in an income-driven repayment plan, working full-time in a public service organization and making progress toward the 120 payments required to earn public service loan forgiveness, then you should, according to the terms of the law, you will be credited toward forgiveness for the months of the payment suspension. So you don't make payments for six months, or you do either way. If you want to, you can always send money, but you don't have to because you should be getting credit towards the 120 payments for that six-month period, but only if you're already enrolled in an income-driven repayment plan. So if you're somebody who is in, in any term repayment plan, longer than 10 years, like the extended plan or the graduated plan or a 30-year term for a consolidation loan uh, with a balance more than 60 grand, those payments were not um, permitted to be counted towards public service loan forgiveness to begin with. And so the CARES Act doesn't seem to explicitly allow for those borrowers to earn payments towards the 120, for example, even if they're working in a public service job. Um, and when it comes to the long-term income-driven repayment, the one that takes 20 years under most of the income-driven plans or 25 years under some of the income-driven plans, um, you are meant to be credited toward forgiveness if you're enrolled in, in such an income-driven plan. Um, because typically the way that forgiveness is measured is they look often at the first date that you chose an income-driven plan, and then they start counting, you know, which periods of time uh, since then counted towards that long-term forgiveness. And so, you know, if you're somebody who is enrolled in a non-income-driven plan, or for example, a you know, student. In fact, Jance, I got an email from somebody just uh, earlier today saying, hey, I'm graduating from med school early to, to go help with the coronavirus, right? There are people who are just about finished with their training, but who would otherwise be in school for another, you know, month. Um, and they're, um, uh, especially in New York, allowing people to graduate early so that they can get on the front lines and help everyone who is sick. Um, thank God for those people. Um, and, but they have, they're in a grace period. They'll be in a grace period on their student loans, right? And so I was asked by this physician, you know, can I, can I waive my grace period um, so that I can start getting credit towards forgiveness? Um, and of course, as you know, Jance, the answer to that is you can't just waive a grace period. You can, uh, you can uh, stop the grace period by getting a consolidation loan, but there are trade-offs to doing that. And in this environment, it's not clear that a consolidation loan would go through very quickly. They, they never go through very quickly, even in the best of times. Um, so, you know, the answer, the, the answer to your question is you're supposed to be able to get credit towards forgiveness. Um, but there are caveats that are not well fleshed out. And, and my plan, and I know your plan too, Jance, is to fight for borrowers to get as much credit as they should. Um, but I... I I'm sure that we will have to fight because I know this system well enough to know that it isn't going to be kind and it's going to, you know, err on the side of um, punitive toward borrowers as opposed to, you know, merciful. Um, but we're we're not going to take that lying down, are we, Hoffman? No, no, not not at all. And I think and I think there's some some things that I want to point out with with 
what the Department of Education released today. Um, so, you know, the law originally that was passed, the CARES Act stated that this period of time would count towards forgiveness, but that's all it really stipulated in, in, in the language of the bill. Um, the Department of Education has clarified that and they said, you know, will these payments count towards forgiveness in the long term if you're already on a plan? And, and it says, yes, it will. But what it doesn't answer is what if somebody chooses now to go on a plan, right? There are a lot of individuals who have lost income during this period of time and would otherwise be looking to enter into an income-driven repayment plan for payment relief. Um, and they may need that beyond this six-month period because even if the world uh, recovers quickly, um, a lot of individuals will still find themselves out of work uh, looking for jobs because the economy has has slowed. Uh, so they would certainly want to do the paperwork now to get into an income-driven repayment plan now, but it's unclear as how the loan services will process that today if they'll process those those uh, requests. Um, and the way the Department of Education phrased it is, if I'm already in a plan, will it count? But could you ask to go into a plan now and have this six months uh, covered? And that's not clear. Uh, also, on the public service loan forgiveness side, uh, it indicates that if you were in a qualifying plan before suspension, it counts, but you also have to continue to work full time during the suspension in the public sector. Um, so, you know, if you were working for a nonprofit or, or, or maybe you're in a, in a nonprofit healthcare clinic that uh, is not essential and is, and is reducing staff, maybe you're a, a physical therapist um, and you're primarily dealing with recovery of surgery patients and something along those lines where they're reducing staff and they're not having that go on. Um, if you're laid off, uh, even though it's supposed to count towards forgiveness, if you're not working full time, it's not going to count towards forgiveness for you. Yeah. And, you know, you know what my my plan is that I think is that I think is useful is like, you know, I think there's too much in the system of of, you know, a law passes and then all the sort of, you know, regular folks like advisors and I'm not. I'm not casting any shade on, you know, financial aid advisors or anybody, but people tend to look to the Department of Education for guidance, right? Because they're an official source of information. That is true. But also, we have to hold them to task and say to the department, like, hey, here's how you should interpret this legislation. And here's why you shouldn't do it another way that would be harmful to borrowers, for example. And so I feel like there's going to be a lot of opportunity for uh, for us to put forward the needs of borrowers um, and to try to you know prevent rules being interpreted in ways that are that are less beneficial for borrowers. And I will say I do you know I do feel like this this time in our in our uh, you know history is a is a moment for people to you know come together from all sectors and say you know let's be reasonable and let's be compassionate and let's you know let's be flexible um with the way the rules are applied and so i think that this is this is not the time for us to you know sit back and relax and just ask questions like oh tell us what the rule is going to be department of ed we need to tell them you know what the rule needs to be because you know the it the rule needs to be what is going to protect um, our citizens, you know, during this difficult time to make sure that their student loans are not going to be part of the problem. And so that's my plan anyway. Yeah. And, and I assume at the end, uh, and it's clear in the, in the language, at the end of this six month period, borrowers have to go back to repaying their loans. Um, and if a borrower was on an income driven repayment plan, it's very likely that during this six month period, they're going to have a recertification that's going to be due. I mean, six months, half a year by nature, at least half of the borrowers will probably end up having their current income driven repayment plan expire. And in order to be able to stay on an income driven repayment plan when this six months ends I and, and avoid capitalization of interest and these sort of things, I would assume that the services are still going to require and the Department of Education is still going to want borrowers to do that annual recertification on time um, because they're not going to want to have to process 43 million borrowers dealing with this all at the end of the six month period. That would just be overwhelming. Uh, so my right. assumption is that they're going to say, look, um, 
recertifications go on as normal. Election of repayment plans go on as normal because they're going to want the smoothest transition as possible at the end of the six months back into whatever archaic systems that they have to calculate payments, give borrowers their annual recertifications. Uh, so I would hope that borrowers could also elect income-driven repayment plans during this period of time. And though they may not have that payment until the end of the suspension of payments, um, at the end of suspension of payments, they would they would pick up that payment that they would have had with that uh, either election or early um, recalculation in some cases. Yeah, I see no reason. I agree with you. Absolutely. If somebody um, is not enrolled in an income-driven repayment plan and would benefit from being enrolled in such a plan, I see no reason for them to wait until the end of the suspension period. And we, as of today, have not heard that such applications won't be processed. Of course, I'm sure that the that the time of processing is likely to be extended. Um, but I think that's, you know, that's, you know, something we don't have any control over. And, and my assessment is that it makes sense for borrowers to go ahead and assert whatever is, um, you know, best for them and pursue, you know, that plan of action and then see how the system responds. Um, you know, and I think, gents, maybe that's a, a decent segue to, you know, what about I saw some things in the media and I know that this this got under your skin because you, you were sending me text messages uh, late at night, which folks, can you can you imagine that a guy like Jan Hoffman, like he gets an idea, he sends me a text message. Am I right? Um, so that's, he, that's true. It, it's true. So um, w the media were, was reporting initially when the suspension of interest, the interest waiver was first announced. They were like, hey, if there's no interest accruing on your student loans, then your payment is going to go exclusively to principal. And I know that's like when you started pounding the table and your wife was like, what are you what are you freaking out about, dude? Just chill. And you were like, bah, bah, ah, ah. And, 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 and why did why did that in particular annoy you? Well, it annoyed me because um, 50 percent, more than 50 percent of borrowers are not in repayment on their loans. When you look at the latest statistics by the Department of Education, that means they're in deferment, forbearance, default. Um, they're not in repayment on their loans. And by the very nature of not being in repayment on their loans, they have accumulated interest, um, either some amount on their unsubsidized loans uh, and, and potentially none unsubsidized, but most, but almost all of those borrowers will have some amount of accumulated interest. Um, then you look at the next segment of borrowers, so the less than 50% that are in repayment, and two-thirds of all of the loans that are in repayment are being paid in income-driven repayment plans and likely also have accumulated unpaid interest from previous years of lower payments on the income-driven repayment plans. So between that segment, you're looking at the vast majority of borrowers likely have accumulated interest and making payments during this interest suspension time. All that's going to do is pay off previously accumulated interest. It's not necessarily going to reduce principal or reduce future interest charges. Um, borrowers in some cases may, if they have been paying their loans off in a traditional amortized schedule and covering interest, then that, that is the case. But the reality is the, the media looks at it and says, this is, uh, all the payments are going to go to principal and traditional payment schedules, and that's not the world most student loan uh, borrowers live in. They're not in that position. So it's not true that making payments is necessarily going to go to principal. It's not true that making payments is necessarily going to reduce future interest charge. And for many borrowers that are working towards public loan for service loan forgiveness or forgiveness from the long-term uh, forgiveness of, of income-driven repayment plans, they likely don't want to be making payments during this period of time because they probably have better places to put that money, especially if those that suspension of payment period is going to qualify for forgiveness anyways. They could be paying off other high interest debt. They could be uh, saving that money for retirement. They could be building up an emergency fund. There are many other places that they could allocate that dollars that would be more useful for that money. So it was really the, the initial reaction from the media was something that, it got under my skin, and yes, I did start texting you at probably midnight Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> well, that's what texting is for, you know. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely right. I mean, and I think it's another example of how um, it's confusing that student loans have different rules than you know, quote unquote, regular debt like we're used to. I mean, because with a mortgage or an auto loan, 
uh, people aren't allowed to to pay less than the interest that's accruing. There's never a case of negative amortization. You don't have unpaid accrued interest. You have you you have to pay the damn interest, you know, as you go. But that's not always the case with student loans. So, you know, even even borrowers who are in school who aren't in a repayment status, um, they you know they'll have their interest rate set to zero for six months, but they the majority of the borrowing is unsubsidized and is accruing interest, and there is an unpaid accrued interest balance. So I encourage advisors and borrowers alike use the studentaid.gov site to get the um, federal student loan record, the downloaded you know text file, um, and look at the principal balance and look at the interest balance and know whether an unpaid accrued interest balance exists. Because as Jans points out, it's very common for such a thing to exist. And also to tie this back into what we were just talking about, at the end of this suspension period, assuming there isn't any other action that makes it go longer than the end of September, we need to be vigilant to make sure that those servicers are not capitalizing any of that unpaid interest, um, because I wouldn't be surprised if their systems um, don't, you know, make a mistake here or there, uh, and that could really harm the the bottom line for borrowers. Right, for some borrowers, that that could mean a hundred thousand dollars or more of accumulated interest that was not subject to interest charges capitalizing and being charged interest. So that's something that all borrowers, all advisors need to look out for. Um, and I think that it, it just kind of goes back to the nature of this. This law was passed pretty quickly. The Department of Education has provided some guidance um, and loan services are, of course, doing what they can to implement that. But there's still a lot of ambiguity here as to how this will actually flush out. Um, and for many borrowers, it's very confusing, right? It's what repayment plan am I on? What type of loans do I have? Should I make payments? Should I not make payments? How long does this last? Uh, you know, many of these borrowers may, in fact, miss their recertifications for their income-driven repayment plan because they're not making payments. Um, they may have this uh, recertification due, not really be paying attention uh, as they probably should be when when they're making payments. Otherwise, the payment would have jumped up and they would have realized it. And they may exit that six-month period with interest capitalization from not doing their annual recertification and a payment that may be thousands of dollars more than what it was when they started the suspension of payments simply because the income-driven repayment plan request didn't get submitted that's, during that's a that good period point. of time. And, you know, I think one of the times that we're going to see a sort of peak in confusion among borrowers and, and hopefully an outreach to, you know, competent, um, well-trained advisors is the, the legislation, the CARES Act also requires certain notifications to be sent by borrowers. So there there is going to be a notification have to be sent to borrowers. They're supposed to have it out by April 11th because it was meant to be 15 days after the enactment of the legislation that indicates the interest waiver and the suspension of payments. And so I, I God knows what those letters are going to say, but you know they're going to be some kind of weird form letter that creates um, as much confusion as it uh, clarifies. And so I think that's going to be a time of keen interest. And then I also think that um, I know that the CARES Act says that notifications about the resumption of required payments will be sent out starting in August, and they have to send like multiple notifications. And so that's going to be another point where people feel stressed because they'll be receiving those um, announcements and having to make decisions about what they want to do, because there will certainly be some borrowers who at that point will realize Okay, I have to make a change in what I was previously doing. I, I feel like I, you know, like my income has been reduced or not, or my, um, you know, my my I've lost my job, so I'm not on on track for my previous plan. So I think we're going to need to be um, very supportive of the needs then, and and you know, really try to get the system to allow uh, for borrowers to do what it is that's in their best interest. Right. And it's going to be challenging because even those letters, those form letters could state what their payment would be, you know, in August when the letter goes out. But if their recertification is due at the end of August, that could be something different come October. 
um, when, when they mm-hmm. didn't recertify on time. And, and you know, it kind of goes back to how, how much do we trust that the loan servicers are going to effectively communicate this to borrowers? How much do we trust that borrowers are actually going to understand these things? Um, you know, going back to the question that we were asking, you know, should borrowers be able to elect an income-driven repayment plan now? Should they be able to do a consolidation? Um, they, they should, right? I mean, the, within the promissory note, they have the ability to choose the various repayment plans that are available to them. Uh, so they should mm-hmm. be able to opt into whatever plan they want to during this, this suspension period, regardless of whether or not they assume that payment once they are uh, qualified with the partial financial hardship or, or choose that repayment option. Mm-hmm. Right. But of course, as as we know, the system is not good at processing things in a timely manner, even in the best of times. And the um, the government and the universities and the loan servicers are all facing um, extremely difficult circumstances right now. Um, you know, in, in, in Jance and I are focused, obviously, on student loan borrowers and particularly those who are in repayment, right? So people who have left school or graduated from school and are making payments on their loans. Um, But the university uh, and the university in communication with the Department of Education and the loan servicers is also struggling with like what to do about you know, current students who are being, you know, sent home and people are, are being allowed to, you know, withdraw at times in the semester where they wouldn't typically be allowed to withdraw. And so we're having to be really flexible. And the, you know, same um, servicers that, um, you know, d- struggle to do a good job in, in good times are, are having to be responsible for all those other things. And so, you know, my sort of general philosophy remains the same, and especially in this time of, of COVID is that, you know, an individual student loan borrower together with the people that they can trust, their, you know, advisors, their family need to, you know, get informed and stand up for themselves and, you know, assert to the system, hey, these, this is what I um, am entitled to and this is what I need. Um, as opposed to, you know, any other kind of attitude like, hey, tell me what, you know, I should do because there, there, you should not get your advice your advice uh, from your debt collector uh, ever, and especially not now. Yeah, and and I hit on this earlier, but too many borrowers are do not feel comfortable uh, with what their rights are as a borrower, what options they have, and when they contact their servicers, they really get get assume and take this bad advice and it's to their detriment and they the that's really where us as advisors um, need to be advocates for our clients to ensure that we can help the servicers implement things the way they're supposed to be and of course with regards to legislation and and working with the department of education really push to to effectively have change Um, that that's that truly works for our clients and the borrowers that are out there because the reality is time and time again, the loan services and department of education um, have let down the borrowers. And as you said earlier, they, they interpret everything in a punitive manager towards the borrowers when, when they don't necessarily have to. Um, so, Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, gents, that before we, we do wrap up, we should also reiterate that, you know, private student loans, completely different, not covered by any of this stuff. And I have heard I'm I am pleased to announce I have heard of some um, compassionate and merciful messaging coming from some of the private student loan companies, including specifically like Discover, I heard. Um, and that so if you are having trouble or you or your clients are having trouble with uh, private student loans and you're wanting to know what to do, CARES Act does not apply, but contact your lender. Um, and they, it is likely that the lenders will be more flexible during the crisis than they typically are, uh, which is good because typically they're not flexible at all. Um, and so uh, it would it would it would be good uh, if that were the case. And it it also seems like and I, you know I obviously don't know everything about everything, but some of the legislative response to the virus is to do things like let you know various sorts of creditors know that like hey don't be an asshole right now you know like you know use your discretion to try to um, be part of the team here you know with people who are going to have trouble with all kinds of bills 
um, including uh, loans and including uh, private student loans. So, so even if you've contacted a private lender before and they've told you that they can't do anything for you, um, it may be that they can now. And you know, for those for those borrowers that are doing okay financially, so for people whose jobs are secure and who are who have strong incomes and and strong credit histories and who have who are not um, yet negatively impacted, at least as terms of their cash flow, um, there certainly are some very good interest rates available for private refinancing. And of course, you should not refinance. Um, safe and flexible federal student loans unless you are absolutely sure that that's in your best interest. And right now, it's it's difficult to argue that that's in um, anybody's best interest when most federal loans are at a zero percent interest rate. But if you have, you know, expensive private loans, typically from like an undergraduate uh, education or from a bar study loan or something like that, this might be a good time to, re- to refinance those loans um, if you can, you know, meet their, their credit requirements. Right. And, and, you know, kind of following on that track of borrowers that could be, you know, have other circumstances that we haven't dived into too much is that uh, we, we may have clients or, or we may be reaching out to borrowers that are behind in payments and in default. And I don't think we've gone into a lot of detail here uh, about what the CARES Act um, provides for them. So, Heather, do you want to talk about a little bit briefly about um, wage garnishment, uh, people in collections, default, w- what's in the CARES Act there? Yeah, absolutely. So the the CARES Act is meant to um, postpone or stop what we refer to as forced collections, collection efforts that include things like wage garnishment, um, seizure of um, federal um, benefits and things like tax refunds. And in fact, I was just seeing today that they're, uh, that the government has said that they're going to refund some tax um, refunds, so some tax refunds that they had seized and withheld. So if a borrower is in default and they file a federal income tax return and they're, they're due a refund on taxes that they paid, the government will seize that refund and attribute it to their defaulted loans. Um, and that has been happening, you know, in this tax season as always. And so if you, if you haven't filed your taxes yet and you're in default, you can file your taxes safely, we're told, and not have your tax refund seized. Um, and even if you had filed and had your refund seized before, I think it's March 13th when the president first made his declaration, um, that you're supposed to get that tax refund refunded, even though it was seized. So, but I'm, I'm quite sure that there will be problems with implementation of this, like with anything else, right? So it may be that a borrower is experiencing wage garnishment at their employer, and the new rule is, hey, that's supposed to be stopped, during this crisis, um, but the employer hasn't necessarily taken the action to do that because they haven't necessarily been notified. So I think there will still be a need to kind of agitate uh, in order to get these rules applied as they ought to be applied. Yeah, and it's going to be hard because it's all short term, right? So it's like agitate to yeah. get the rules applied. Probably by the time they're implemented, this thing may may expire. Um, so you know, just to recap everything we've talked about. CARES Act passed. We got six months of no payments, six months of no interest on primarily direct loans. Um, borrowers really need to be concerned and careful with how the loan servicers treat it during this period of time. We need to make sure uh, that borrowers have a strategy in place with regards to um, whether or not they're going to be paying or not paying this period of time. They need to look out for their if they're in an income-driven repayment plan, the their recertifications during this period of time for, for students that are graduating or maybe their grace period is just ending because they graduated in, in the fall. Um, we need to be looking out for their ability to still enroll in income-driven repayment plans or, or their repayment plans of choice uh, to make sure that um, we're still doing the processes with regards to what's requirement required in their promissory notes that they have to hold to. And then we need to be on the lookout for all these errors and mistakes that could be happening and be willing and able to push back on the servicers to make sure that uh, all of the new rules and regulations are being implemented uh, fairly for borrowers. Exactly. And Jan Hoffman, you are a heck of a guy. I am delighted to be working with you on a on the daily because you are smart as hell. And I appreciate that you are on the team here to help borrowers and advisors who are trying to 
uh, make things better for everyone so that higher education can be affordable to all of us and, and not only for uh, those who are um, lucky enough to be able to pay uh, cash for education. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be helping, Heather. And, and, you know, I think the effort that we're doing along with all the other organizations um, that are supporting borrowers, uh, it, it's really um, difficult work at times, but it's really rewarding works to see the, the change we can have and the value we can have. So I'm happy that to, to be working with you and, of course, with Larry and everyone else uh, at the board and, and to everybody out there in the world, um, stay healthy, uh, stay safe and stay inside. That's right. Awesome. Great talking to you, Jance. Wash your hands, buddy. I'll talk to you soon.